Well, we started the unenviable task of studying the book of Revelation last week. And I mentioned that we approach this like every, every sermon, that the Holy Spirit guides me through it. Because the last thing we need is somebody's misinterpretation of what God's word says. I also mentioned last week that there are five interpretations or views of this book. Uh, briefly, they're the, the preterist view. These people believe that the events have already taken place in 70 AD under the Roman persecution of the church. The second viewpoint is a historist view. They believe these events have happened from the beginning of the writing of this book until today. In other words, they're going on. They started in 95 when this was written and it, it continuing on through today. There's no, it's just not a timeline. It's just a, something that's always happening. The idealist view is they regard the book as containing certain timeless spiritual principles about good and evil throughout history, but not having any historical events. In other words, just a, it's not like a good fairy tale. It's just like a, an example of what might happen as opposed to what exactly is going to happen. The propheticist view is they treat this like some of the Old Testament prophecies that had two applications, one for now when it was written and one for future events like they did a lot of the Old Testament prophets were talking about that current time but they're also prophesying what was happening with Jesus. So that was the propheticist view. The futurist view, which is what we believe, what's what I believe and what the Bible teaches, that all the events from chapter four on are the events that are going to happen in the future and will happen over a, a specific seven year period. Now, good believers differ on these things and my goal is not to separate us but to simply teach what I think the Bible tells us. A lot of good believers believe all these different viewpoints and we're not gonna separate over those. But I wanna understand what the Bible says about it. Revelation 1, 7, we left off with. It says, look, he is coming in the clouds. Oh, he's coming with the clouds, big distinction. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. This is, they're talking about Jesus' second coming. He's coming with the clouds. He's going to land on the earth. The rapture, he's in the clouds. He doesn't land on the earth. And when they see him, everyone is going to be mourning because at the end of the seven years of tribulation, the only people left on the earth at that time will be unbelievers. The church will be raptured, and Christians during that time will be martyred, so the only people left during that, or the end of the seven years are the unbelievers. So they're going to mourn because they're going to see firsthand the judgment of God. Now, we should have included verse 8 in last week because that closes the train of thought. It concludes with, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And this verse actually concludes the, the salutation of the letter. When you open up the letter as a greetings and salutations, this is the last part of that. And I remember I said this letter was like a dictation to John. And it started with, Dear John, here are the instances. And it concludes with John saying the word, Amen. And the letter, this letter of intensity is such that it is, it needed to say something more than just John's approach. Jesus had to step in and verify the accuracy of this by, by basically making the last statement of the opening remarks. To show the recipients of the letter that it's a valid, Jesus is basically signing it personally. Alpha and Omega are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. It's another way of saying that God is the beginning of all history and he's the end of all history. And he wants his readers to understand the severity of the letter that they're going to read. 
And now we come to the next section of the letter, which starts at verse 9. And it says, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are, that are, are ours in Jesus. He again identifies himself to make sure they understand who's writing the letter. It's John. They would have known who he is because he started most of these churches the letters are going to. And they knew his situation. They knew where he was. But he wants them to understand that he is suffering along with them because the people he's writing to are suffering persecution. Just like we're seeing now in Afghanistan, these folks are suffering the same type of persecution. And he needed them to know that he's not just speaking from, from an office somewhere. He wants them to understand that whatever you're going through, I'm there. I am suffering just like you, and I want you to understand what Jesus says about the suffering. And it's easier to receive encouragement from someone who is going through what you're going through more than someone who's never gone through what you're going through. Right? 2 Corinthians 1 uh, 1 1.4 says, Jesus, he comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can comfort others. When others are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort that God has given us. You can be sure that the more we suffer for Christ, the more God will shower us with his comfort through Christ. So when we are weighed down with troubles, it's for your benefit and salvation. For when God comforts us, it's so that we in turn can be an encouragement to you. Then you can patiently endure the same things that we suffer. John's telling them, look, I'm suffering too. And it's easier to receive encouragement from someone who's there than someone who's speaking not from experience. When I first started visiting hospitals and when I was a young preacher, well, not young, but younger than now preacher, the first time I went to a hospital room, I was talking to a lady in the bed and I said, you know, I know how you feel. And she said, no, you don't. No, you don't. And she was right. I don't know how she felt at that moment. She was suffering and I wasn't. So I, don't, I have no idea how she felt. It's easy to receive something from somebody who has been where they are to encourage them. Paul said that in 2 Corinthians. When we suffered, God blessed us. And now I'm going to tell you how God blessed us when we suffered so that when you're suffering, you can receive it too. Verse 9 goes on and says, John was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So he was exiled to this barren penal colony because of his witness for Christ. One commentary says this island was used for political banishments. Now the verse doesn't say he was sent there to preach. He was sent there because he was preaching. Look what's happening right now in Afghanistan. People are being executed for having a Bible app on their phone. How many of you have a Bible app on your phone? They executed a woman for not wearing a burqa, that covering. You don't think that kind of stuff can happen here. It can't. You think about preparing the world for the tribulation. The vaccine. I don't care which, which way you go, whether you take it or not. But notice how they're pushing for everyone to do it. They're prepping you for the mark. Pushing you to get it, so that the world is conditioned into listening and following what everyone's telling them to do. This just makes me think that the rapture is coming quicker than we think. 
Verse 10 says, I was on, the, on the Lord's day, I was in the spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. Now, there's two parts to that. First one was the Lord's day. Now, differing people different, feel different things about that, but it's, it's kind of hard to define what they mean by that. I believe that the Bible teaches that they're talking about Sunday, the Lord's day. Some people believe that it's the judgment day. In other words, he's taking them to the end at the day of the Lord. When the Bible talks about the day of the Lord, it's talking about judgment. But it's not phrased that way. It's phrased the Lord's day, not the day of the Lord. There's many verses that talk about the day of the Lord judgment. 1 Thessalonians 5, 2. If you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Joel 1, 15. Alas for that day, for the Lord, the day of the Lord is near. Joel 2, 31. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon turned to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So he's not using that phraseology. He's using the Lord's day. And I think that's Sunday. Acts 20 verse 7 says, On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. 1 Corinthians 16 2, On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money. Now we have, we've equated the day of the Lord as Sunday. Now, what it's not, the Sunday is not the Sabbath. How many understand that? A lot of people think that, well, Sunday's the Sabbath. We don't know. That ended. Saturday was the Sabbath for the Jewish people. We are not, we're not under that particular law. We should set aside a day for the Lord, but we're not under a law to do Saturday. Romans 14.5 says, One man considers one day more sacred than another, Another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. I think John's identifying with himself and other believers that, he, that he's referencing the day that they come together to worship. He was, it was Sunday. It was the first day of the week. And notice the second part of that ties in where he says, in the spirit, which refers to a special intensity of spiritual awareness by which a godly person is extremely sensitive to the communication of the Holy Spirit through means such as he's going to receive as a vision. When our music part is over, the worship part, we call it the worship, but the whole service is worship, technically. But when the music part of the service is over, we have been worshiping, the Bible says, what, in John 4, 24, where when God is spirit, worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. So when we are worshiping God, if we're doing it correctly, we are worshiping in spirit. We're doing it corporately in spirit. When John's saying, I am on Sunday and I am worshiping God in the spirit. So I think those two tie together to make it the Lord's day rather than the day of the Lord. And during those times of worship, aren't you more aware of the Holy Spirit in your midst? You can sense God. You can feel God. We usually have the gifts of the Spirit in operation at that moment because we are sensitive to that, what God wants to use. And it was during this time of worship on the Lord's Day, he now hears a voice that sounds like a loud trumpet. Some believe it was an angel's voice, but I think it was Jesus' voice. Verse 8 says that Jesus signed the letter, you know, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. Revelation verse, chapter 1, verse 1 says, he made it known by sending his angel to a servant, John. The NIV doesn't capitalize the word his, if you look in your version, but the NASB capitalizes the word his angel, H-I-S, capital H. 
And every time God uses the term the angel of the Lord or his angel, he's talking about Jesus in the Old Testament. How many understand that? When in the Old Testament, when you hear the angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord, capital T, is Jesus in the Old Testament. And so when he is saying he's sending his, capital H, his angel to a servant, John, I believe that's talking about Jesus. So John is hearing Jesus' voice for basically the first time since the ascension. So it's been 60, 62 years since he's heard Jesus speak. And it wasn't like a soft-spoken Jesus that he walked when he walked the earth. Now it was loud and commanding because he's no longer the suffering servant, but now he's the conquering king. And now at this point, John gets his marching orders in verse 11. Said, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now, a scroll, and we think of a notebook, right? But a scroll was basically the inner bark of a papyrus tree grown in the marshes of Egypt. And it would be at least 15 feet long, maybe longer than that. And he had to write on this inner bark. That was, a, that was a scroll. And once John completed all 22 chapters on these scrolls, he would then send this entire thing to every church. It would go first to the church in Ephesus, and then they would pass it on to the next church, and then they would pass it on to the next church. And it wasn't just the letters to those churches, but it was all of the revelation so that they would see what is happening now plus what is going to happen when they're not here. And it was sent to them to show them and a lot of the churches had to be corrected. He's saying, this is what's going to happen. You need to be ready for that. In other words, all these things you're, that you're doing that are wrong, you need to fix before this happens because you don't want to be here when that happens. And what was, it was for to challenge the churches to get right, to avoid the coming judgment, and to show them that even though they're suffering intense persecution, there's going to be an end and that the evil is going to be dealt with. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I kind of wish it would now. Not so much a rapture, but I wish God would kind of end evil right now. But according to his word, this is when he ends it. And it's going to get worse before it gets better. Verse 12 goes on and says, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were, bla were blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. So in case you were wondering, I think this solidifies the fact that I think Jesus is the one speaking here. So John turns around and, and sees who's speaking, and the first thing he sees, or at least the first thing he records, is the lampstands, which is unusual. I would have recorded Jesus, but he puts the lampstands down first. And he tells us that in verse 20, he says, the seven lamp, what they are, seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, we assume that the lampstands were lit, and if they were lit, they were lit with oil. 
not candles. How many know they didn't have candles back then? It was lit with oil. The oil in the Bible symbolizes what? Holy Spirit, right? So you have seven churches represented by the candles, the candle stands, and they were lit with oil of the Holy Spirit. So each of these churches were believers and they had the Holy Spirit. And they, they would receive this letter and, tells, and it tells us that the Holy Spirit was active in that particular church. But more attention is given to Jesus. He's standing in the middle of those lampstands. What's that tell you? Jesus needs to be in the center of our life. And especially in the center of the church. Jesus is in the center of all these lampstands. He needs to be in the center of everything we do here. When we're worshiping, he needs to be in the center of the worship. Whenever we're doing anything for God, Jesus needs to be in the center. The title that they use, Son of Man, is used to signify Jesus' authority and power. Mark 2.10 says, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sin. So he's using that term to let us understand he's got authority here. He's, he's got the power and authority to do what's going to happen. Verse 13 goes on and says, And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. But it says, Dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. In the Old Testament, the robe and sash were worn by the high priest in the Old Testament, and they signify, and now on Jesus, they signify him being the high priest. Exodus 28.4 says, These are the garments that are, they are to make. A breastplate, an ephod, a robe, a woven tunic, a tube, a turban, and a sash. They are to make these sacred garments for your brother Aaron and his son, so they may serve me as priests. And we know that Aaron was the high priest. Verse 14 says, His head and hair were, like white, were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. Daniel, if you read the Old Testament, Daniel is like the Old Testament counterpart to Revelation, a kind of interlock. And they both combine to show what's, what's going to happen at the end times. And Daniel 7, 9 says, I watched as thrones were put in place and the ancient one sat down to judge. His clothing was as white as snow, his hair like whitest wool. And Daniel 10, 5 says, I looked up and saw a man dressed in fine linen, clothing and a belt of pure gold around his waist. His body looked like a dazzling gem and from his face came flashes like lightning and his eyes were like flaming torches. White hair, what's the Bible tell us? White hair symbolizes wisdom, but it also symbolizes e eternal things, eternality. In other words, God sees all, which enables him to rightly judge. What's the problem we have now in our current court system? They don't see everything. You don't see everything. You have only the evidence you have, and it either works or it doesn't work, and some evidence you can't put in, some evidence is put in that's false. Jesus is saying, I see everything. And so when I'm going to judge, it's going to be correct because I have every piece of evidence in front of me. And the feet suggest that judgment. Verse 15 says, his feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. The bronze altar in the Old Testament temple was the fire that consumed the sin offering. That's where you put your sin offering. It was consumed there. So the Lord is coming to judge his churches first. And then the world. What's the Bible say? Judgment begins in the house of God. In other words, we need to do what we're doing right first. Then God's going to judge the world, but we need to get it right. 
You ever been to Niagara Falls? How many have been to Niagara Falls? How many, you, when you're up there, you can't hear each other talk because the water sound is so rough. Revelation 1.15 says, His voice was like the sound of rushing waters. It's hard to hear someone unless you're really close to them and they're listening, you're listening for them. It's easy to get distracted by the things that are out there and God wants us to be really close so we can hear his voice. Psalm 93.3 says, The mighty oceans have roared, O Lord. The mighty oceans roar like thunder. The mighty oceans roar as they pour, as they pound the shore. But mightier than the violent raging of the seas, mightier than the breakers on the shore, the Lord Almighty is above them all. His voice is symbolizing what his word has already said. Son of man symbolizes authority and power. His voice is giving the authority in the way it's spoken. How many, when uh, my kids are little, if they were doing something I didn't want them to do, and it wasn't imperative, I would just kind of yell at them. But if they were doing something that was imminent, doesn't your voice change? Hey, stop. So you, they know by the intensity of your voice that you better stop what you're doing at this moment. Different from your everyday conversation. And I think that's what God was trying to get across here. It's not his everyday conversation. It's a roar of a thousand oceans. You need to listen with authority. Revelation 1.16 says, In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the, shine, the sun shining in all of its brilliance. The right hand in the Bible is a, is a place of power and authority. Isaiah 41.10 says, I will strengthen you and I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. How many, that's your favorite verse, or one of your favorite verses. You've got to memorize, right? Luke 22.69 says, But from now on the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. So he's not only saying, Son of Man, I have power. I'm saying it with authority, and I'm saying it from the right hand. All three symbolize the authority and the power of God. Verse 20 tells us what the stars are. It says the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Now some believe that these are angels sent to guard the churches. But I think, and I think most people agree, that these are symbolizing the pastors of the churches. Now why do I think that? Because people see the stars. When the letters are written, they're addressed to the churches. And we assume that a person... The pastor is going to read these things, not an angel. He's going to read them, take them to heart, and then he's going to read it to the church. I don't think angels would be reading them and dictating them to the church. I believe it's the pastors who are reading them. They're the ones that are making the decisions. They're the ones that, that need to be corrected so they can correct the church. So the letters, the stars are representing the pastors or whoever the leader is in that particular church. If it was to the angels, God wouldn't have to correct the angel. But he has to correct the men. Verse 16. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. And we know that's what? The word of God, right? Ephesians 6, 17 says, Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. 
when I was working with kids, we used to, I had this big sword. And we, we'd do sword drills. How many have ever done sword drills? Sword drills are, we did them with kids, but we used to do them with the adults too. You'd raise up the sword and quote a scripture, whatever the scripture of memorization was, and you had the kids do it. And then we'd ask them, okay, what was last week's scripture? Sword drills. And we would get them to memorize scripture and repeat it that way. The sword, this is the sword. This is the only offensive weapon we have. But it's also meant to be a defensive weapon as well. When Jesus was in the garden, what happened? The devil tempted him. What did he do? He quoted the, the Bible, a defense against what the enemy was saying. And Jesus saying, look, this sword is going to cut either way. It's going to cut sin away from the church or it's going to bring God's grace and forgiveness. So when the word of God, when you hear the word of God, it's going to do one of two things. It's either going to convict you and you want to do it or it's going to make you mad and you're not going to do it. How many have read things in the Bible that you don't particularly like? Really? But how many know that every word, every word is God's word? And whether you like it or not, or agree with it or not, it's either going to judge you of sin and make you stop it, or it's going to drive you away because you don't like what it says. And what he's telling the churches is this sword is going to, it may cut you off from God's kingdom. Now we're talking on Wednesday night, we're doing a study on eternal security. The ability to walk away from Christ if you are a Christian. We believe that you can. You've got to work at it, but you can do it. You have to make that choice. And when he's writing these letters to the churches, he's telling them, these are the things you have to correct. But also says, he who has an ear, let him hear. In other words, if you're not, if you're not going to do it, then this sword is going to cut you off. When we read God's word, we need to understand that what God's telling us is for our benefit. If you have little kids and you tell them to do something or not do something, it's for their benefit, right? They don't normally like it, but it's for their benefit. When they go to school, they have to learn, they have to do homework, they have to do things in class. I don't know any kid who really likes school, but he goes because it's going to be beneficial for him. When we study God's word, it's beneficial for us. It keeps us from harm, it keeps us from hurting ourselves, getting into sin, it's designed to keep us safe. Or it's designed to push you away if you don't like what it says. We watched, uh, the ladies watched the Cory Ten Boom movie on Friday night. Another agonizing suffering that Christians went through, not only Christians, but obviously the Jews. You think of man's inhumanity to man happens. We're seeing it again today. But when we got home, we watched her interview with Catherine Coleman. And she got to describe some of the things that happened during the camp. But one of the things she told us that, or she said in the interview, is that she would tear off a piece of the Bible and stick it in her shoe. Because she, and that's the only time she would ever read the Bible. Can you, can you imagine that? 
not having access to God's word, and the only time you have it is when you have to tear a piece out and stick it in your shoe to get encouragement. We have these plentiful. You can't swing a dead cat without getting a Bible. They're everywhere. You walk in Walmart, they're, they're there. You walk in any store, they're there. We have no excuse for not knowing and studying God's word. <laughs> no, we do not condo- uh, condone that. It's just an expression. Verse 16 says, His face was like the, shining, the sun shining in all of its brilliance. Again, showing Christ's glory, preeminence, and victory. This is the fullness of glory that Moses was not allowed to see. Exodus 33, 18, then Moses said, show me your glory. Exodus 33, 20 says, but he said, you cannot see my face. No one may see me and live. Then the Lord says, there is a place near where you can stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I'll remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. So he has seen the glory of God. Revelation 1.17 says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Now, how many would probably do the same thing? Wow. This is the same Jesus that he leaned on during the Last Supper. They were buddies. They, they hung out. He kind of rested against them. But now... This Jesus, he falls before him in reverence. He's no longer his buddy. Jesus is now his Lord. I heard a sermon a long time ago called Jesus is not your buddy. We have to have reverence for Jesus. He's our friend. He's our Savior, but he's not your buddy. He's not someone you joke with and and do things with. He's still God. You have reverence and awe for him. He loves you as a friend. But we never forget that he's the Lord. He's the Lord. Verses 17 through 19. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the key of death and Hades. Right there for what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. So Jesus is now commissioning him. He got his marching orders. He's saying, okay, get up. Don't be afraid. I'm God. I'm the risen Christ. Another deity reference for those who say that Jesus doesn't refer to himself as God. I died for your sins. Now I've been resurrected. As some, at some point, you will be as well. In other words, Jesus says, I'm in charge. Keys signify authority. If you have the keys to something, you have the authority and you have control over it. Jesus has control over death. And now, John, now that you know all of that, start writing about what you're going to see. And there's three aspects of that verse. He says, what you have seen, in other words, the opening vision, chapter 1, what you have already seen. What is now, those are the letters to the churches, chapters 2 and 3, And then the third point of that, the third aspect is what will take place later? And that's the rest of Revelation from 4 to 22. Jesus starts him off with a short explanation of what some, some of what he has already said. 
kind of the closing opening to, to John about what he's going to do. Verse 20 says, The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels, angels of the seven churches, or we thought leaders or pastors. And the seven lampstands are, in fact, the seven churches. And I think this is the only time he actually explains what a symbol is in Revelation. But what follows now, now that we're chapter one is done, the next two chapters is written to the churches. And it's not only written to those churches, it's written to every church. And as we're going to see next week when we start that, every one of these types of churches has existed in every period of time. Now, some people think that Ephesus was the church in the book of Acts, all the way to the church in Laodicea being the church when Christ returns, and that the church has declined over the ages. I don't believe that. I believe the Bible says that there's churches of all stripes in every era. There's a church in Ephesus today. There's a church in Laodicea today. So that's John's whole point to the churches. Knowing the judgment's coming, we need to make sure that we are ready to make the rapture. Because what follows the rapture at the end of chapter 3 is what's going to happen to everyone who's left. How many have seen the Left Behind movies? There's been a a bunch of them. We don't want to be left behind. And just as important, we don't want anyone else to be left behind. At the beginning of the year, we put names and uh, requests on that cross, mostly people that we're praying to come to know Christ. And we meet the second and fourth Thursday night, and we pray, we worship, and we take time praying for those as well as anybody else we know. Now, I'm sure every generation thought that they were the last generation before the rapture. And Jesus may not come back in my lifetime or in your time. But I got to think that what's going on today is not a coincidence. That God is showing us or allowing us to see what is going to happen. Sometimes you read Revelation and say, that, that can't possibly, that can't happen. But we're seeing it today. And I read an article about this new, this new virus that's coming out. What was it? What type of virus? Another, like, like polio. It's coming out in a couple of months. Like, how do they know that? And, you know, all the stuff that's happening now, I think is just conditioning everyone for what's going to happen after the church is gone. I'm not sure what people are going to think. I think there'll be mass pandemonium when the church is gone. Think about what's going to happen when Christian pilots are off their plane. Christian drivers are not driving their cars anymore or driving their trains anymore or operating on someone or whatever they're doing. When they're gone instantly, there is going to be mass pandemonium on the world. And it's going to be very easy. And if you think that COVID was a mass pandemonium, wait till this happens. And it's no longer going to be, well, we think you should, we think you should do this to protect yourself. It's going to be, you will do this or else. 
that's when they're going to come in. And the people that are here are going to have to experience that. We just want to make sure that no one's here that we know to experience that. Would you stand as we close this morning? Would you bow your heads for a moment? I never want to assume that everyone who's in a church has actually been saved, been born again, has trusted Christ for the forgiveness of sins. People sit in churches all over the place that don't know Christ that have never made that commitment. But the stuff we're studying is showing us what's going to happen in the future. And it's happened to a small degree right now in front of our own eyes. So it should make us really understand that what we're studying is going to happen. It's true. But Christ gave us a way to avoid all of that. Whatever hardship and tribulation is coming, the Bible says it's just, we don't compare it to the glory that's going to be revealed when we get to heaven. We want to miss the tribulation. We want to be part of God's kingdom when that trumpet sounds. Because when that trumpet sounds, there's no, no going back. The five foolish virgins, they were, they were Christians, but they weren't ready. The five who were wise, they were ready. The five foolish ones, they didn't make it. For a believer, we want to be sure we make it. We want to be sure we're living as the Bible tells us to live. Not under condemnation, but under a gratitude of what Jesus has already done for us. But if you're not a Christian, and you're on the fence, the Bible says today's the day of salvation. Not tomorrow, not next week. No one's guaranteed tomorrow. That's why it says it needs to be done today. If you've never really accepted Christ's sacrifice for your sins and acknowledged that you're a sinful person and that nothing inside of you is good enough to make it to heaven, you can't be good enough. But Jesus came. He took your place. The punishment that you should have received or I should have received, Jesus took. And because of that, because of that, now I can get into heaven. But there's a catch. You have to choose it. The Bible says, no one comes to the Father unless, no one comes to God unless the Father draws him. So that means, if you're thinking about God, it's because God is making you think about him. He's drawing you and he's wooing you. But you have to choose. He's not going to knock your door down. He's not going to come in and make you do it. He wants you to choose. Everything is there. His love for you is there. The sacrifice is there. The gift of eternity is there. But you have to choose. And today's the day to make that choice. If you've never been saved, you, never, you can't look at a time in your life when you actually said yes to Jesus, then maybe today's the day for you.
If that's you and you want to be sure, the Bible says these things are written that you may know you have eternal life. If you want to be confident of where you're going to spend eternity, I want you to raise your hand right now. Father, thank you. Thank you for drawing us in. Thank you for saving us when we were unlovely and unrepentant and sinful people. You kept drawing us, and we are so thankful for that. Your word says you're long-suffering, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. We thank you that you saved us. But until your rapture happens, Lord, we know you're long-suffering, waiting for others to come as well. So Lord, we lift up those we are praying for in our family and our friends who don't know you. And Father, I pray that you would come upon them in the power of the Spirit, that you would draw them, you would draw them with the word of God that they may have heard sometime in their life come back to their mind. I pray that you would send people their way, situations, circumstances, all to draw them to the cross, all to make them understand that they need Jesus and there is a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. Lord, they need you. And I just pray that you would do whatever you know needs to be done in their lives that they come to know you. Lord, your word says the goodness of God leads people to repentance. Let them see how good they have it in this world, in this life. And understand that they're only being blessed because of you. Your word says every good and perfect gift comes down from you. So if they've experienced goodness in their life, help them to realize it's because of you. If they've experienced hardship in their life, let them know that you're the one to comfort them and help them through that. You do what you need to do, Father, so that they are saved. Help us as Christians to be ever vigilant and alert to be used by you when we're out in the public. Give us divine appointments and opportunities to talk about Jesus. If nothing else, Lord, help us just to invite people to church so they can hear the gospel and know that you love them and care for them. Tribulation in hell was never designed for, for people. It's designed, for the Bible says, for the devil and his angels. You don't want anyone to go. You want all to come to repentance. So Lord, help us to do what you need us to do. And Lord, we pray that you would do what you need to do in their lives so that ultimately they come to know you. Father, we thank you for your many blessings. We thank you that you are good to us. And would you continue to lift up our sisters and brothers who are hurting and struggling. Pray your protection upon them. Allow the gospel to be preached, we ask in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. God bless you. Enjoy the week. See you Wednesday and then next Sunday.